Welcome back, everyone, to The Heart Podcast. We're happy that you're joining us. On today's episode, we're focusing our attention on the ways poverty shows up on our college campuses and creates challenges that can thwart students' full potential. We're focusing on poverty as it relates to the pillar of separation from the truth, racial healing, and transformation framework, given that poverty can lead to people having disparate experiences that can cause separation and, frankly, inequalities in higher education pathways and outcomes. In this conversation, we approach our discussion about poverty with the understanding that it is by design and socially engineered. And with this perspective in mind, in this episode, we explore together how teaching and serving students challenged with the conditions of poverty can help us consider systemic and structural barriers that have a bearing on students' everyday lives. Our guests today include Dr. Laura Bunyan from the University of Connecticut, who is an associate professor in residence at the Department of Sociology. Her research areas include gender, work, and families. Her work on the Stanford campus has focused on finding better ways to serve students confronting conditions of poverty. At the UConn Stanford campus, she has started a food pantry, which is now known as the Husky Harvest. She started this program with her students in her Sociology of Food class. Also joining us in this episode is Graciela Guzman, who serves as a success program manager for the community-based organization Higher Edge which serves undergraduate students from New London and Wyndham counties in Connecticut. In her role, she aids college students in achieving their educational goals while promoting and encouraging student success, retention, and graduation. We're so excited to have both of you here and really look forward to this conversation. I now pass it over to Omar to share a land acknowledgement and then we'll begin our conversation. Thanks for joining us. We would like to begin by acknowledging that the land on which we gather is the territory of the Mohegan, Mashantucket Pequot, Eastern Pequot, Scaticoke, Golden Hill Pawgusset, Nipmuc, and Lenape peoples, who have stewarded this land throughout the generations. Thank you, Milagros, for that introduction, and Omar for the land acknowledgement. Laura and Gracie, we are so thrilled to have you here with us today and specifically for this episode focus on how conditions of poverty are impacting students today and how higher education educators can work to create changes in the classrooms and at their institutions to close the disparity students may experience because of challenges they face due to poverty. So with that being said, We want to begin today's conversation by asking both of you to share a little bit with us about your work on addressing conditions of poverty within higher education. And from your experience, what you believe are some of the top patterns that higher education educators need to be aware of in order to better support students who are challenged by conditions of poverty while trying to pursue higher education. And I'm going to ask you, Laura, to start the combo. Yeah, I think more in the realm of education, I see a lot of my students, first of all, they're primarily low-income, first-generation students of color. So I see a lot of students that maybe aren't coming to class prepared with readings done and things like that. And it's not a disinterest. It's not an unwillingness to learn or do the work. It's that they can't afford the books. So 
if you can't afford the textbook for a class that maybe, I don't know, I try to use readers, try to use things that are more cost effective, you're probably also hungry. Um, and I've had students over the years that come to me and when you ask some probing questions, they'll admit, yeah, you know, I don't eat, I miss meals, I don't have money for food. And I see that as a major barrier to access to a good quality education. If you're hungry, you can't focus, you can't learn. But it's bigger than that. It goes into issues of getting clothing to where to work and things like that, that some of my work spills over into now and food insecurity in general. Yeah, thank you for explaining that, Laura, that a sign that, you know, if a student hasn't done their reading, you know, it's good to think of some of the larger systemic issues. And it also makes us think more about, okay, you know, we don't just instantly blame the student. We may think of more of the factors that may be contributing to why students can't show up fully as um, they would like to in the classroom experience. So thank you for sharing that. Gracie, do you have anything you would like to add on to the conversation about top barriers that you think that students may face that educators need to be aware of? I do. So like I mentioned prior, I do work with first-generation students, limited income. And so a lot of the times, these are the students who have a lot on their plate already because they are helping their families with siblings or they have to work in order to pay bills, rent, food, all of those things that take away from actually being engaged in the classroom and being able to learn, um, have time to study. I have some students who work 40 hours a week. I work 40 hours a week. And sometimes I can't handle working and just being a human. I can't imagine also being a student. And on top of that, having to worry about, you're also working on your professional development while you're in school uh, for, for the goal of becoming a successful something in a career, right? You're already graduating with nothing to show on your resume because you don't have time to take the internship or to go to the networking events. And so that's probably one of the biggest barriers that we see. And so in my job, um, one of the things that we promote is to do scholarships so that you can have more time to do those things. But it's also a disservice because on top of their schoolwork, now they also have to worry about filling out those scholarship applications. And so it's just another thing that they have to add onto their plate. And like Laura mentioned, it's not that they're being lazy or avoidant, it's just that they really don't have time to focus on classroom learning. And then another thing is some of these students are coming from school districts that are underserved. And so they're already unprepared. They show up to the classroom and feel this isn't for me because I don't have the background that my peers do. And so already there's just things that are setting them back and they have to have that extra time to sort of learn how to learn. And that's that's part, part of it. I appreciate that, that point you just made, Gracie, about students needing to have, many times they, they are needing to have this opportunity to learn how to learn. And it's difficult, you're both raising the issue that it's difficult to learn how to learn or to just learn when there are other human basic needs that are going unmet. Or if they're not going unmet, the multitude of different needs 
at the same time that would just make it hard for anybody you know as you said crazy even for like ourselves and balancing our own lives and work and professional aspirations like that's already challenging and then add all these other elements related particularly with with challenges that students may experience when they are under conditions of poverty so thank you for raising that and the and the complexity of that because what you're both saying essentially is that especially for educators when students don't show up their full selves maybe the first thing we should do is check in on whether they're okay before we go to the assumption of this student isn't meant to be here or this student doesn't know how to do the work or this student doesn't want to do the work right and so that connects actually really well with one of my favorite quotes from bell hooks in teaching to transgress is this idea that the classroom remains the most radical space of possibility in the academy i truly believe that it's something that in my heart i'm really anchored to and but i also understand that for that to be true for the classroom to be a radical space of possibility it requires faculty to pay attention, to notice the many ways that the classroom can be a space and a place for transformation, for liberation, and potentially a mediator or even an incubator for social change. I'm wondering, Laura, if you could speak to the food pantry project that you started in Stanford that initially began in your classroom. Can you speak a little bit about how that came to be and how your classroom created a space for that possibility. Yeah, and something I want to add on to what Gracie just said, and also this classroom making it more of an inclusive space, which is a goal of the food pantry too. Yesterday, I was teaching my family's class and I said, you know, some of you, I said, I think you don't feel comfortable talking because maybe you think that other people I have like a better critique of what we're reading than you, but you have to understand that maybe you're right. Maybe they're a little bit off the mark or maybe you're all right and that this is okay. And you could see them like visibly relax. And then I had more participants. So I think that's something too for educators to know. It's not that someone doesn't want to talk or participate. It's that sometimes they don't feel like what they have to say is important and contributes to the conversation. So going off the food pantry, I started teaching sociology of food, like I mentioned before, and I wanted to do like a group project with them. Keep in mind, this was also really the height of COVID. It was spring 2022. So we still had like a few weeks remote. It was hard. And it was also an e-designation class. So it fills it environmental credit. So I had a lot of students that I don't think they really wanted to take my class. They were there because it fulfilled that. So that was a little bit of challenge, but Hopefully I won them over. They were amazing. We separated them into groups. I said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to make a food pantry. I don't know if this is going to work. I don't know if it's not, but we're going to try and see what we can do. So they broke into groups. Some were interested in marketing. Some were interested in nutrition, some operation side. And then they would all work together in their small groups. And we worked together collectively. We met with, uh, we had an interim director and I said, hey, we just want to try this out. 
And he's like, oh, like a pop-up. So we went with that. We said, okay, we'll do a pop-up for a few days and see what happens. And I said to my students, it was staffed by them. We were open three days a week, three hours a day, all volunteer. And I said, okay, what do you all want to do? I said, we can just do this one-time thing or we can just leave the doors open for the semester. And they were like, oh, let's leave it open. So it was amazing to see them come together. I had some of them admit, they were like, I didn't know what I was getting into, but it was for them the coolest thing that they ever did in college and for me too. I think it allowed them to gain like this deeper connection with each other, with UConn as an institution, but also knowledge of food insecurity. This was one of the other things we do like snacks that I want anyone to take. And I took them all. I said, maybe you're not food insecure, but maybe somebody you're close to is. They're going to feel better if they go with you and you're all getting a snack. And to work to break down these barriers. I think it, you know, one of them, we connected with a, um, an organization, Food Rescue US. One of them went and did an internship with them. It just, I think it shaped them and allowed them to see what change could come about when students work together, even within the institutional setting. That's really powerful, Laura, because it sounds like it sounds like the thing you were focusing on was the food pantry as a project and that that in and of itself was an important way for students to give and connect within their own campus and that there was additional ripple effects of them you know, engaging more with this idea of food insecurity, doing internships in other places and things that maybe they wouldn't otherwise have explored. So I really appreciate that. I'm curious if you could backtrack just a sec to why a food pantry, like why did that even become the project? Could you speak a bit more on that? Yeah, absolutely. So one of my former students that I mentored forever is a first generation, low income man of color, and one day I taught a class at eight o'clock and they would come in and they'd say, I'm sorry, I'm late. I just worked the night shift. And I'm like, you worked the night shift and then you showed up for my 8 a.m. class? Like, I, I can't even imagine, okay? So this goes back to what Gracie's saying, like the burdens that our students carry. And we sort of got to know each other. They had a complex family life and would often sleep on friends' couches. So I would say, well, how are you eating? Like, what, what's going on? And they'd say, oh, you know, obviously I'm not really eating a lot. They don't have a lot of money for food. So I would bring snacks or I'd make like lasagna and we'd have lunch together. And I'd be like, here, take this home. And I've said this before in interviews, like you can make a lasagna, but that doesn't fix anything. It makes the person feel good and included, but that's like, that's not even a bandaid on a problem. Now we have dorms on campus, but we still have a lot of students that are food insecure. The Stanford campus does not have a dining hall or anything like that. Stanford is so expensive. They can't afford to eat around there. There's no food or anything like that. So that's why this came about. I was actually in there yesterday just to check in with someone quickly. And the line out the door was nonstop. In just like the 15 minute period I was there, students grabbing multiple items, grabbing quick snacks, whatever they needed. Thank you so much for that, Laura. I think it's so, so powerful, this food pantry project that you envision for, for so many reasons. I think like you took such a big leap of faith on yourself, on your students, on the institution. 
And there's so many layers that I heard in, in this food pantry project. Like you taught students that, that, you, that there's a need to be addressed in the community, right? There, you also taught them the importance about working in groups, which that is never going to go away, you know, beyond their youth. It's in fact, it's only going to become heightened as they get older and they reach professional roles. And also this, this last point, it kind of takes me back to one thing that you mentioned earlier about students sharing in class and how you mentioned that like they, they, they don't even like, they're not even aware of the beauty and the, the knowledge and the creativity that they have embedded within them, but you open that door to them. And that is, I think, what you did through this food pantry project as well, that you opened their horizons about creating change. You created change agents and hopefully they go to different spaces and now they're aware that, yeah, I can make a change on my campus or maybe in the community or maybe politically. And so it's amazing. There's so many layers to that project that the students are, aren't even aware of. I'm not even sure if you thought of that, Laura, like, Holy smokes, like now students are, you know, I just sent out a group of change agents. So kudos to you for that project. And I think you're, you've created so many ripple effects that are going to benefit students and the community. So just, just want to give you kudos for that. And so passing it over to Gracie, I'm, I'm really excited to ask you this question, Gracie, because actually prior to starting grad school, I was a college prep coordinator at a community college in Arizona. So I worked with high school students. I worked with community college students and to be quite honest, I love grad school, but I miss being in front of students so, so much, you know, because you see that progress, you see that change on a week by week basis. And so it's so beautiful. Uh, so as for your role, Gracie, as an advisor of a, a pre-college program, we'd really love to learn more about how your one on one relationships with students allows you to get more insight about the specific barriers that they might be facing due to poverty. So do you have any like general observations, maybe specific examples that you've learned while being at higher edge and, and working with your team there? Yes. So to begin, so I work with students after they already are accepted into college. So the, the pre-college part is um, Kayla, our college access advisor. And um, before they come to me, I really have no background besides what I get from Kayla. And so I start with a pre-meeting questionnaire kind of survey on Google Forms where they can check off things that they might experience while they're in college. One of the questions being food insecurity, poverty, anything like that, just so that I know what is to come. And sometimes the students don't even know themselves what they're about to get into, right? So we talk about all of those things prior to them starting which means reviewing their fee bills, making sure we waive things like health insurance when they might think that they don't, you know, they, they think I have to keep that health insurance, not knowing that they can waive it, but it's also about, you know, learning to uh, read your emails and getting parking passes, all of those added things that they didn't really account for. So we make sure to prepare for that prior to them starting as well as getting them dorm supplies. One of the things that we started at Higher Edge is called the Success College Closet. It's new. What we do is we get a bunch of uh, dorm supplies, really, like, um, and school supplies. And they can come into Higher Edge, shop for free, take whatever they need. We don't see anything. We just let them do whatever they need to do. And sometimes they leave with something small. Sometimes they leave with a lot of stuff, mainly bedding and towels and pillows. And that just gives them sort of like a, a break of buying those things that they need for school so that they can focus on the things like buying food and snacks for school. And so during our one-on-ones, I really just check in with them, make sure that they're doing well, 
not just academically, but also transitioning into this whole new life of being independent and being on their own. For our commuters, it's mostly making sure that they are feeling secure with their reliable transportation. Sometimes that's not the case. So then talking about maybe moving onto campus is the best option. And then when some other students who would probably benefit from not being at home due to their home environment, we also talk about perhaps staying on campus and then we, well, I help them figure out a way to stay there for, for breaks, um, whether it's working on campus or taking a class. Unfortunately, that's something that they do have to pay out of pocket most of the time, but other times we get lucky and they get a paid job. And so that's one of the things that I do to help them get through college without having to couch surf. Very rarely do I have to help them dial 411 or go to a shelter for any assistance like that. But I, I would like to think that we are educating them and preventing all of that from happening, but it does happen. And in that case, I, I do have to step in and kind of reel in my other team members, either connect them with social services or finding somebody on campus that's going to help us out for, to get this student through. But that's mainly what we do. Gracie, thank you for sharing about the closet. So we have this pantry idea, we have the closet idea, like it just shows like the multiple different like resources that students can benefit from. And so I really appreciate you raising that. What this reminds me is why we're having this conversation in this season where we're focusing about truth, racial healing and transformation. And the section that we're focusing on for this episode is separation. And one thing maybe our audience might be wondering is like, well, why are we talking about poverty when we're talking about separation or if this is supposed to be connected to separation? And what you just mentioned about the closet and Laura, what you mentioned about the pantry and what I'm highlighting about, you know, the other extreme that's also in higher ed is actually emphasizing that in higher ed, we have a financial separation on the way students are experiencing even the opportunity to learn, the opportunity to just be a higher ed student. So I just wanted to make that connection here because uh, maybe it wouldn't be as evident for others about why we're talking about this topic as a form of separation, why we're talking about poverty. So thank you both for the work you're doing and for highlighting those things. Yeah, that is a great segue in terms of thinking about poverty as these two different realities that students may experience, you know, and specifically, we want to talk a little bit more about how poverty isn't experienced the same, even within the group that faces that particular challenge. So based on your experience working with students, you know that issues of poverty may look different based on the intersections of their identities. Can you share more from your experience, the barriers that come up for students with intersecting minoritized identities and what it calls for in terms of educators' responsiveness to these intersecting realities? And I know, Laura, we could start with you. I know you sort of hinted at it, giving an example of one of your students earlier, but if you have any more scenarios or examples that we could draw from about not just looking at these issues as if they're the same for every student. Like, 
what type of mindset would we need to take on to sort of individualize that support? It's interesting because I would think that I would see like vastly different experiences for different students, but I would say for mine, shockingly, there's more similarities than differences. I used to have, like when I started here, it was primarily very privileged students. They were returning. They were like much closer to my age even, and that has just faded away. I do have some more adult learners and things like that now, but they tend to have a lot of the similar constraints that the 18 to 22, 23 population also has. In terms of educators and that piece of the question, I think one of the problems is that my students, that they think they're the problem. And I think a lot of times the university thinks that they're the problem, but we need to look at it that, you know, especially myself in the classroom, I'm part of the problem. Like I say, how can I ask this differently? I think as educators, you have to be open and learning. Like I can, I learn more from my students some days than they learn from me because you have to be flexible and pay attention to their broader needs. I mean, these students, they care for siblings. They care for family members. They work as part of their overall family. You know, when we taught on Zoom, I would get emails that said, I can't have my camera on because my sister, we share a room and they get dressed in the morning, right? Like, but they're not gonna tell everyone that. Another professor might just think they're disinterested and they don't have their cameras on. So I think a lot of it is reframing the conversation and not like, why aren't they doing this? It's like, what is going on that doesn't allow them to do that? Because it's always bigger and it's always structural and it's much bigger than them. They want to do well. They wouldn't be in college if they didn't. And I think maybe Gracie, you see this, I feel like so much of middle school and high school is no one's going to help you in college. So they think that no one's there to help them, but they're also dealing with, I mean, there's a, a vast racial difference. I'm white, you know, from some of my students. And I know I just got an email from one that said, I need some help with the mental health resources. Can you help me with this? I said, yep. I said, so I can walk you there tomorrow. And this is what you do. You email and call. And they said, thanks. Let's go there tomorrow. So we'll go together. But I tell them those stories too, because I have more and more men that I walk there now. It used to be pretty much that I was taking women and you see this shift. And one of the things I love about it is just the resourcefulness and the openness of these students to get access to help that they deserve. But I think a lot of times they don't feel that they deserve it or that they deserve to be in these spaces and talking about the readings or maybe they don't understand it, but they, feel uncomfortable asking. And I, I, listen, I'm not the best out there. No one is. But there, I know there's a lot of more faculty that are a lot more closed off to those discussions and don't put these extra things in. And that's what these students need. And it goes back to the food pantry. This is like food. That should be a basic human right. And they don't have that. Their family struggle. I have students that take bags of food home for their families. And I encourage it. Thank you, Laura, for bringing that perspective to the table, particularly around shifting demographics and what that means for how we serve students and how that helps us as educators to not perceive students in one specific way and box them in. And the importance of meeting students where they are, but even more importantly, 
not blaming the student. And what that does for us is that it allows, it gives us a pathway to see that there are greater structural and systemic issues that are shaping their experience. And it allows us to, once again, think outside of the box. Okay, what can I do differently in terms of the way that I teach to better meet their needs? So thank you so much for sharing that. And, and Gracie, we would like to turn it over to you for this question. Like, what are the various ways poverty may show up for different groups of people or over time, new patterns and trends that you are seeing in terms of student needs being met? Sometimes our students, they can go into a community college, for example, and everything's good, um, everything's great, and then something happens, the dynamic shift, and they're all of a sudden struck with poverty or homelessness, family situations change. And so it really warms my heart, Laura, to hear that you are one of those trusted people on a campus that can talk to students because it's one of the things that I drive home to them is that you are as much as deserving as the next person. I am one of those trusted people, but I try to shift them so that they can think about their campus as their new home. And, and I'm just an added layer of support. I am that middle person between their family. There is me and then there's your campus. And part of that is encouraging them to be open with their professors because you never know where, if you are honest with something, if it can, either change your due date or or help you just discuss things that are you're learning in the classroom. And so one of the things that I did want to mention is that you were talking about the system and how it's just the way that it is. And I hate saying that. I'm like, it is what it is. You're in the higher education industry is it's also a business. And so they want their their funds. You're there to learn, but you also have to pay for things. And so one of the one of the things that I wanted to bring up is when a student has a balance, then they can't pay it. Then they have a late fee tacked onto that. And then they have a hole in their account and they have a hole in their transcript. And that tr transcript hold won't let them get the scholarship that they need to pay off that balance. <laughs> so it's a circle that they can't get out of. And I wish that there are more resources to help a student um, close that gap. We, we try with the scholarships, like I had mentioned previously, but again, it's something that they might not have time to do. I understand that because I know them on a whole different level. I've worked with them for years. And so I try to lessen that burden as much as I can, but at the end of the day, it has to be their signature on that application. I can't do anything for them. I can just encourage. And so I would hope that in the future, professors in the classroom can accommodate, you know, they have, they have accommodations for students who are neurodivergent. Perhaps we can have accommodations for students who are poverty stricken just because the world is not working for them right now, the way that it's supposed to work. Um, and our wealth, their wealthier counterparts don't have to think about any of that. They just do. And they come out and they have a whole different experience in college than their other students. Gracie, that was absolutely great and really appreciate what you're lifting up here in terms of really just trying to reimagine some of the ways that we do things and really some things that we do are easily things we could be flexible about or like approach differently or even like get out of our own way in terms of just being more human with one another instead of um transactional you know sometimes in higher ed we like 
focus more on the transaction about what needs to happen, like what you were just describing, you know, like financial aid is, is one department and it's dealing with this one way of doing things. And then, but the registrar has this other policy and then they're working. And so it's all meant to help things flow efficiently to have, you know, the records you need. But in an effort to to kind of do those things, sometimes we forget that behind that number, there is a person. There is a life behind that number. Um, and in that life, there are complexities. And sometimes none of the policies and none of the structures will speak to that complexity. The only thing that can is the human educator who might say, wait a minute, how do I just make this less hard on you? What could I do? And what you're saying is maybe more educators could step up to that plate and really pause and think about the ways that they could do that. And that really works so seamlessly with where we wanted to close the conversation. You know, um, there are educators, and when I say educators in this sense, I mean both those who are actively in the classroom, in front of the classroom, or online as a classroom space, but also many practitioners on our college campuses who play similar educational roles through different outlets, whether it's advising or student leadership or other offices. And so I'm wondering if you both could maybe help us close out this conversation, really speaking to all the educators on campus. I'm wondering if you might have just one more piece of advice or final words you might say for how we maybe create classrooms and learning spaces that are sites of possibility for students who are experiencing economic challenges. If you could highlight one thing that you think could really be impactful, what would that be? Well, I, I want to bring up that I've had a spectrum of, of, of students who speak about their professors very in a very positive manner and some in a very negative manner. There are students who believe that their professors are have a very elitist state of mind where like you are in this classroom, but um, you don't deserve to be here type of thing. Because if you want to be here and learn, you have to make the sacrifices to be here and learn. And then there's some professors who hold, you know, office hours during class time. And those students are the ones who are excelling in their classroom because now they have that connection with the professor that they otherwise may, maybe they can't go to the office hours because they have to work. But these professors in those classrooms, making the time to know who their stu student is and dividing their semesters into a way that's more manageable for them so that they can still learn and they can still complete the work. That is what is amazing to me. And those are the students that are excelling and they have a different confidence when they come back to me and they're like, I spoke to this professor and they're bright and they're happy. And that's what I want to see. I don't want to see a student who's being sort of like pushed out from this elitist state of mind. I think too, there's a lot of dehumanization, like Gracie was saying, I think do your best, learn students' names, get to know them. I learned about this. I've been doing, I think for two years, I read about it in a journal where um, first generation students. So I started giving out like a piece of paper the first day of class and said, it says, what do you wish your professor knew? Okay. And there's a range of things that they write, but I started saying this semester, Hey, if you want me to contact you, you know, put your name because last year, I think in the spring, I, or no, it must've been the fall. I had one that wrote, 
that I'm here and I'm making all these friends, but I can't afford to be here. So I don't think I can stay. And they erased their name. So I took a chance and I sent them an email. I said, Hey, come talk to me. And they did. And then I put them in touch with financial aid and these other things. I wish I could tell you it was a good outcome. I don't think it was, but they knew that someone cared and that someone would help them. And when they reach out for extra things, which they always do, well, not always, but some do, I don't think we should look at that as burdensome. I think we have to look at it as we're their person. And if they're reaching out, they're desperate. When they have a problem, they need to learn that sometimes these are obstacles that we can overcome, but they need someone to help them and guide them. We didn't get where we are with no one helping us. And I think especially for advisors, like I work with some incredible advisors. And when they tell me the names of their advisors, I'm, I like sigh with relief because I'm like, oh, I know you'll be just fine. You're in good hands. I think advisors need to have a list of resources for students and constantly refer because, you know, I can't feed the whole campus. So I have to have other resources for food insecurity and just things that we amass as we go along that we can give them because we didn't, we weren't just born with all these tools. And I think it, they need to see, our students need to see us as people also, but the whole university needs to see them as people and individuals and not just as a number or a monetary value. Laura and Gracie, words can't express how grateful we are for the depth of your responses as you spoke to the layers of inequity Yet, you also mentioned the opportunities to address issues in higher education spaces. Specifically, you both spoke to the conditions of poverty that exist in academia, most of which impact low-income and first-generation students of color. In working with students one-on-one, -on -one, you've personally heard narratives about the barriers that minoritized students face in achieving their academic goals, and how these signals might be misconstrued by administrators, faculty, and staff with the false notion that they might not want to be present in the classroom. As scholar practitioners, you encourage us to question how might students be able to work, study, and also be human beings during their academic journey. Checking in with students and inquiring about their humanity is vital to cultivating healthy progress in their long-term academic and professional trajectory. With regard to classrooms and institutions being sites for change, building bridges between academia and communities can also be an area of improvement. You both acknowledged how establishing trust takes time and how it's important for institutions to build relationships that encourage dialogue with both students and parents, which can foster a deeper understanding about the needs of communities. This directly ties into the work of Gracie at Higher Edge, in which they're addressing housing, transportation, and food insecurities that students face. Laura also engages in this work through addressing the structural needs of students by way of a food pantry at UConn Stanford in an effort for them to be successful in the classroom and beyond. Our guests believe that campus life should be considered more than just an academic space and more so as a place of support for students. That said, how can we be more human with one another rather than being transactional? And what needs to happen in order to make that possible? Lastly, our guests extended fruit for thought in which the academy can bring about a very elitist state of mind that can make students feel as though they don't belong in academic spaces. Laura and Gracie encourage us to move away from this elitist state of mind, which is incredibly dehumanizing and perpetuates inequities. 
Instead, we need to take the time to learn more about our students, their families, and about their humanity. Being vulnerable can be a powerful tool towards change in which resources can be shared that can ultimately bring about systemic change. We wish you both the very best as you continue to carry forth your projects, and we thank you for the wisdom you shared with our audience with regard to this timely topic. As always, we're thankful for the support from the Office of Diversity and Inclusion and the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning at the University of Connecticut, because it takes a village and it takes heart.